test. Sorry, guys. I got to hydrate after that. I'm a little winded. I'm embarrassed to say. I'll just blame it on my kids. They take all my time. <laughs> mm. So before I get started, let me make one quick announcement. Uh, Brian let me know there's an astronomy class in the fellowship hall behind here uh, on 6.30 on February 23rd. Did I get that about right, Brian? Yeah, okay. Okay, today, let's get started, jump right in here. Uh, for those of you who don't normally attend or, you know, first-time visitors, I usually do the worship, and uh, there, we usually have a, another preaching pastor that takes care of the majority of the preaching. Nate's not here this week, so I'm in for him. Uh, this is actually my fourth time speaking to this body, and I have to tell you, I think God is doing a work in me right now. The very first sermon I prepared, I was absolutely scared to death the entire week of getting up before you guys and, and speaking. Uh, you know why we get scared to get in front of people. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to look, you know, ill-prepared and stuff like that. But I actually look forward to this week's sermon, to today, and had zero anxiety or nervousness until about two hours this morning. That's pretty good for me. But let me tell you, tell, tell you the key of what I found, is that I look forward to spending time with God all week, because I'm constantly meditating on the topic. And so I'm, as much as I can throughout my day, you know, I'm thinking and praying on that stuff. And it just makes my week better. Seems like uh, maybe a way we should live, huh? Well, this morning to say that I'm angry and maybe a little hurt is an understatement. I just found out that another one of my siblings' marriages failed. Just found it out. That's, that's three of the five of us kids. All that's left is my sister and I. And I, I don't say that vindictively or in a way that I feel ill will towards the other members of my family because of what has happened. I'm just angry at Satan and the lies that he's able to spread and infiltrate through families. And you've had, heard it say before, the attack on the family now is greater than it has ever been. Okay? And through my study this week, I couldn't help but recognize the fact that without the family, without the family, we have no replica of the church body in our homes today. Hence why the church is so lost and broken. I'm going to put out a definition of marriage. It's, it's, a, uh, it's not gospel, meaning it's not something I pulled straight out of the Bible. It's an idea. 
But the definition of biblical marriage that I see is two people coming together to help the other person come home. And I'm going to say that again. Two people coming together to help the other one get home. So this brings me to the fun part. I enjoy doing things a little different. I've got a visual aid, okay? Uh, I won't call you kids because I, I know, Titus, you're not quite a kid anymore. So I'll just refer to you as young people, okay? Is that okay? So <laughs> this part of the sermon is just for you guys, all right? So I have a visual aid. So when somebody tells you guys a story or somebody's reading a story or even preaching a sermon, there's a little picture that gets painted inside of your head, right? You start to visualize something, you know, maybe in great detail, maybe not. Depends on how well the speaker does. <laughs> Here's the visual aid today, kids. What I have here is what my visual aid, in my mind, came up with when I thought about biblical-based marriage. And what you have is man on this side and woman on this side. Interwoven in no specific fashion. And I want to emphasize that when you're talking about two halves to make a whole, there's not one part that's more special or more important than the other. Okay? They're both equally important. So here, here is an example. A cylinder. You take my half with my strengths, my weaknesses, and you put them together with Allison with her strengths and her weaknesses. Okay? This also is a reflection of the church body and all biblical marriages are going to look similar. They're going to reflect the image of God. Okay? Okay. Today we'll be studying mostly in Ephesians 5, so if you guys want to turn there and just kind of put a thumb there, uh, we'll be there shortly. But first, let's start in Genesis chapter 2, the 18th verse. And while you guys are getting there, I'm going to conclude something that I found as I read over some of this material. Every time God made something, he concluded that it was good and then moved on. But there was one thing that he didn't say was good. When he, when he created man, he said, man is incomplete. And it is not good for man to be alone. So how did God fix this problem? How did he fix it? He created Allison Marie Johnson, who married Therese Bohall, who allowed us to create Hannah Elizabeth Bohall. Okay, and you guys can fill in the blanks. Man. 
Okay, let's go to the text. Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So he made woman. The term woman is a compound of the words womb, W-O-M-B, and man, thus making woman. It is a person of mankind that has a womb. This means that a woman is a person that has a womb. Is that, is that redundant enough for you? Let's look back to Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Wait a minute. Wait a cotton-picking minute. Now you're telling me that if God made woman to complete man, he must have originally been incomplete. Do you think that's a fair assessment to, to make? I do. Have you ever thought of yourself broken or incomplete as an individual? I can't say that I have his relation to my marriage all the time. Yes, as a human. You know, I thought I had everything I needed, you know, to get through this life. So let's take a look at what was missing from this guy, Adam, who was created in likeness and image of God. One may conclude that God must have been maybe more romantic than men. God must have been more feelings-based oriented. God must have more sensitive feelings than men do. God must be more in tune with beauty than men are. Romantics. I have to be super intentional about romantics in my relationship. It's not something that comes natural to me. I, my goal is the end of that, if you know what I mean. But there's a process that's important that we go through that makes that end better. Romanticize your wife. And it doesn't have to be anything special. I used to think, you know, it had to be something like paramount every time I did. No. She said, when you tap me on the shoulder and say, get out of the kitchen, I'll finish the dishes. I guess that's romantic. There was a preacher when I was growing up that used to say, blank started in the kitchen. There's a reason for that. More feelings-based. I ran to my father for approval and my mother for comfort. Okay. Now, I know those of you who are new are probably dying to ask how tall I am, so I'll just tell you. I'm six foot nine, and I do not play basketball. Would you believe it if I told you when I was about this high I wanted to be a wrestler? You know? People were telling I wanted to be a pro basketball player, play football. 
But there were people that were telling me, man, if you win state in basketball, you got to share it with the rest of the team. If you wrestle, you get to own it all to yourself. So I gave it a shot. And uh, I remember my very first match. Um, my dad sat stoically on the bleachers, and my mother, she got down on the mat, and she was pounding it. Come on, Trees! Come on, son! Get it! You know, she didn't want anybody hurting her baby. I, I'm telling you, she, I'm surprised they didn't call us disqualified on that. Call me disqualified for my mother. <laughs> Ooh. Love you, Mom. She's probably going to listen to this. More sensitive feelings. If I'm not careful, I can make my wife cry with the tone of my voice and the intensity I bring to life. Beauty. Women have no idea how they light up the world around them. No idea. They shine like beautiful, delicate flowers. Men, we typically aren't as polished as women when we present ourselves. Now, I probably had to stop there and just say this one caveat. I know these are generalities. Not everybody fits into these categories. I certainly don't. To you and I, excuse me, a marriage is two beings, two individual beings, two cells, two celled animals coming together. Okay? But God looks at us as a one-celled being. You know? He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh, interweaving your strengths and weaknesses. Okay? God also says at the end of that verse, oh, forgive me, no, this is in Ephesians 5, we haven't been there yet. Marriage is a profound mystery. Meaning every marriage is going to look different on the inside, the infrastructure is going to look different on how we get to the goal of looking like the image of God and presenting ourselves that way, holy, cleansing, and blameless to Him. There's no manual for you to follow. You must work together to fit together. That sounds kind of good. But again, Christian marriages should represent the image and glory of God. So let's go to the text in Ephesians 5. And we're going to read, start in verse 22. So just a little background. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus to strengthen their faith by explaining the purpose of the body. So starting in 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Uh, dinner this week, my family, we kind of brainstormed a few ideas on what it looked like for Christ to love the church so much that he gave himself up for. He sacrificed for the church. He fellowshiped with the church. He taught with the church. He ate with the church body. And he died for the church. I think we can conclude that God definitely has high expectation for his church members. How else would they know they're, we are Christians by our love, right? And isn't it a shame that often our marital disputes end up being the very same things over how we should be fitting these together instead of doing this? We can't fit them together when we're doing this. Button heads. Look how you can compliment your spouse. Paul was very clear about calling out men as the leader of the house. Talk about high expectation. Men have a huge responsibility on their shoulders because it starts with us. It starts with us. Because as leaders, we set the course of direction. Our families are going to go. So for like me and my household, I say, hey, we're going to be a church-going family. We're going to serve. We're going to love. We're going to work hard. And how that looks for every family is a little different. But as the man... I'm setting the rudder of where we're going, what direction. And then my family carries it out in support of me. Thank you, Allison. I had preconceived ideas coming into marriage, maybe we all do, from growing up watching my parents. So I, nat I naturally took on the same tasks as my, my father did. You know, but... I've since learned and evolved that I'm, I work to identify strengths and weaknesses in both of Allison and I so that we can work together to fill those voids. I refer back to this visual aid. 
So back to Ephesians 5, the text. Uh, Apostle Paul is using an analogy to explain God's church. And I don't, I don't think there is any higher definition of marriage than comparing it or explaining it to the church. Often when I counsel couples in marriage, I like to say it takes two to make a marriage work and it takes two to make a marriage fail. Oftentimes we put the blame squarely on one person. The bottom line is we have to work together. We have to put in the work to do it. You know? I had a college professor, a psych professor over here at Mesa when I went. And uh, he, also, he would always used to say to his crew, it's dead brained. And then he would repeat some thing that he told us all semester to beat it into our brains. Crew, it's dead brained. Okay? Wives, if you want your husbands to love you, respect them. And husbands, if you want to be respected, love your wives. Period. I love tools. I'm a builder. I was a fireman. All kinds of cool tools. You know, God gave us a tool in this text, he tells us, to help fix marriages. And guess what it is? It's man and woman. Us. Marriage is a process of two people learning from the other those aspects of God that aren't in you. Here's an example that would follow that. If... Uh, a kid, one of the kids left the house without a coat. Mom would take one to them. Dad would say, just let him freeze. He'll learn his lesson. Okay? Eh, I've taken my son lots of coats and stuff. But I've also said, let him freeze a couple times. The point is, I think that I'm trying to make here, is that uh, kids need both parents in balancing out what they need. If I'm incomplete and my wife is incomplete, for them to get the complete picture of what God looks like, well, you know where I'm going with that. Here's something interesting I found. Do you know and realize that anywhere in the Bible it doesn't command women to love man? Well, that was a terrible sentence. Do you realize that nowhere in the Bible does it command women to love their husbands? Titus 2, 3, 4 says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Notice that the verse doesn't say, teach the younger women to love their husbands. 
but rather how to, to love their husbands. Okay? God doesn't have to tell women to love their husbands because it's already in their DNA. My mother was the first person to show me love. Without her love and care, I would have died. And I remember feeling pretty useless when I was a young father. The kids, all all they wanted was mom. But as they continue to grow, I feel like I get more active in the role I play in their lives. Okay, it's short story time. I'm going to break it up here a little bit. A funny anecdote. And I see... (laughs) Sorry. I just got to be careful. So this week at school, well, my son comes home and he says, today on the playground, Dad, a bunch of girls chased me around until they caught me, used a jump rope to tie me up to the swing set, and then proceeded to try and get me to propose marriage to each one of them. I couldn't stop laughing when I heard that. That is the cutest thing I have heard in a long time. But my point is, at the young age of seven, those little kids are running around and they feel that they're incomplete. I got to find my man. Chasing him down. Ladies, do you have relationships with other women older and younger, that you are teaching and learning from? Because the Bible commands it. Let's look at a couple more verses before we wrap up here. Let's go to, well, let's see here. I'm just going to say 1 Peter 3. Starting in verse 1. Oh, I feel I'm in the wrong spot. There we go. Talking about overseers. Okay. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. And I just have to stop and say, in the same way he's referring to the previous um, chapter that deals with how people are to submit to every authority and how Jesus submitted to God through his time on earth all the way to his death. So back to the text, starting in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 
For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Adam and called him her master, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. It sounds like our wives' submissiveness teaches us men how to submit to God because that's not something natural for us men to do. If I had my way, I'd be still out there chasing cars and biting tires like I was doing in high school. Thank God for my wife. And then go to verse 7, 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I don't know about you, but I want my prayers to make it to God. I need all the help I can get. It's a commandment. Do not be harsh with your wife. Ephesians 4.26b says, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. I've heard this verse I don't know, 15 years at least. But in my marriage, what I've noticed is if we go to bed, let the sun go down in our anger, most times it never gets resolved between us. And there's your foothold. There's the devil's foothold. Because there's going to be unfinished business and emotional hurt. Men, our women are completers. Without their judgment, we are walking around incomplete. Listen to your wives. Listen to your wives. Live with her in such a way as to nurture her spirit and focus on helping get her home. View your woman as a delicate flower. And with that delicate flower, we must hold on to it tight enough that the wind won't blow it away, but that the, the roots can continue to grow in the soil. Men, be the sandy soil in your wives' lives. Nurture that spirit. Let him grow. Men, just as we are to die to ourselves daily and follow Christ, so we are to die or deny ourselves when it comes to loving our wives. 
And in conclusion, remember, love is not something we feel. It is an action, something we do. Uh, I read this little excerpt from the, the newsletter at the gym I attended this week. It's entitled, For the Love of the Gym. Really, it just really fits in well here. Uh, I don't know this gal. My assumption is she maybe was written from a secular point of view. I don't know. For the love of the gym, she begins by saying, motivation is garbage. I mean it. There's not enough motivation in the world to keep anyone consistent with anything. You'll have days where you don't want to do it. If it's working out, stretching, eating the right meals, or even going to the grocery store. These days exist and we all know it. So how do we overcome this? In my opinion, it's about finding a love for the things we do. For me, when it comes to love and what I value as true love, it's a commitment to a choice to love. A choice to love. It's an action. So thanks for listening to me. I just want to encourage you guys today to make love a priority in your lives. Love conquers all, doesn't it? I believe that. I've seen it. Again, thank you for uh, taking the time to be here. And I'm going to invite up Ephraim to do the communion homily.